Life on the riverboat in the 19th century was not easy. You had to earn respect, and perhaps that's why young Sam had been fighting again. So this time, after the scrap, the captain led him to his quarters and calmly asked, So, you have been fighting, Mr. Brown? Yes, sir, says Sam. Well, did you strike him first? Yes, sir. With what? A stool, sir. Hard? Middling, sir. Did he knock him down? At this point, Sam equivocates. He, he fell, sir. Did you follow it up? Did you pound him much? That is, severely. One might call it that, sir. Maybe. Hmm. Well, it's a terrible offense. But then, Sam sees a mischievous smile come across his face. Clear out with you. Don't be guilty of this offense again. As Sam closes the door, he hears the captain cackling, (laughs) slapping his fat thighs with laughter. Scenarios like this were common enough. Riverboats were the modern way to travel, and it attracted gamblers, swindlers, and smarmy snake oil salesmen. And they loved preying on a crowd trapped on the water. Take, for example, years later, when Sam was on another riverboat. He noticed three gamblers that had a menacing look, and he tried to avoid them at all costs. As he would state later, They were rough, repulsive fellas, for they gambled in an upper deck stateroom every day and night. And I often had glimpses of them through their door, which stood a little ajar to let out the surplus tobacco smoke and profanity. They were an evil and hateful presence, but I had to put up with it, of course. One passenger, it seemed, felt the exact same way, and he was committed to keeping Sam close, which was fine with him because, as he would say of his new friend, There was something engaging in his countrified simplicity and beaming good nature. Mr. Bacchus was a cattle raiser by profession, and he joined Sam on his daily promenade along the riverboat's deck. One day, Bacchus confided in Sam, showing him $10,000 in yellow boys, or old antebellum gold coins. They were stashed in a short, stout bag, and Bacchus explained that it was all of his life savings. He was going to California to start a new cattle ranch. But somehow the three gamblers got wind of Bacchus's riches, and a few days later Sam watched as they accosted him on the deck. Bacchus drew away. The gamblers followed and kept at his elbow. But it ain't any use, gentlemen, Bacchus said to them. I tell you, as I've told you half a dozen times before, I ain't gonna risk it. The gamblers wanted him to play his money, that is, to lose it in the devil's game. Sam was relieved at his friend's level head, but it was short-lived. As the riverboat neared its last leg, he caught a glimpse of Bacchus flying from his stateroom. His walk was fast and impulsive, and stashed in his hand was the sack of cash. He was heading for the gambling hall. And what's worse, he had an acquisitive look in his eyes. When Sam walked in, he found Bacchus at the poker table. And he was drunk. He praised the cider, as he called it. It was so good and so ahead of anything he had ever run across before. At this, smiles passed from one rascal to another. And they filled all the glasses... And while Bacchus honestly drained his to the bottom, they pretended to do the same, but threw the wine over their shoulders. 
As Bacchus drained yet another glass of wine, the final hand was dealt. His eyes were bloodshot, his face sweaty, and his speech was maudlin and thick. How many cards? asked the dealer. None, said Bacchus. His confidence made the gambler smirk, salivating at the gold. The moment had finally arrived. Sam's friend and his entire fortune was on the line. He couldn't bear it. He knew the outcome because he had seen it so many times before on riverboats just like this one. The truth was, these smoky crafts were where he found not only his behavioral identity, but his nominal one too. I mean, after all, riverboats are where Samuel Clemens adopted the pen name that would make him famous. Mark Twain. Welcome to Microbehaviors, a different kind of podcast that uses stories from the past to help you apply the latest behavioral research. Each episode helps you learn, ask, do. First, you'll learn cutting-edge psychology in a captivating way. Next, you'll ask reflective questions to make this information personal to you. And finally, you'll do one single microbehavior, a small action that's triggered by the daily situations you face. It's time to take the best behavioral research out of the lab and into your life so you flourish at home, work, and in your relationships. I'm Andrew Webb. This is Microbehaviors. Let's get to it. As the last card was dealt, Bacchus seemed to wake up. A latent energy had been budding within. Tan, he said with uncommon confidence. Up until this point, the bets had only been cents or dollars at most. Ten was just too high for two of the ruffians, and so they folded, leaving only one, the meanest of the group. I see that, and go you a hundred better. But Bacchus was unfazed. He moved to his overcoat, pulling out a hundred dollars, throwing it on the pile. Hushed whispers filled the room. Oh, is that your little game, is it? I see your raise, and raise it 500. Without an ounce of hesitation, Bacchus moved it up again, another 500. All diplomacy and pretense were dropped now, and the sharp exclamations came thick and fast. The shining pile of antebellum coins grew higher and higher, when at last $10,000 lay on the table. I call you, said Bacchus, throwing his golden bag onto the pile. What do you got? Fall kings, you fool, mocked the gambler, reaching instinctively for the pile of cash. Fall aces, said Bacchus, while simultaneously bringing out a hidden revolver from his coat. I'm a professional gambler myself, and I've been laying you for duffers all this voyage. And with that, the anchor chains roared, and the riverboat came to a jolting halt. They had arrived. Mark Twain is one of America's most notable humorists. Even 150 years later, comedians are gunning for the Mark Twain Prize for American humor, with winners like Tina Fey, Steve Martin, and Eddie Murphy. All these comedians have something in common with Twain. To be that funny requires an astute awareness of your environment, 
observations about people and the world around you. They take true principles and then present them in an ironic way. So if you think of it that way, Twain could be one of the wiser philosophers of our day. I'd say as a matter of presenting principles, he may even rival the greats, Cicero or Plato. I sometimes wonder how would Twain and Aristotle get along? If you read both, they cover a lot of the same subjects. Man's thinking, behavior, ethics, politics, morals. My sense is Twain gets to the heart of Aristotle's philosophy, but he does so in a way that it just makes us laugh. For example, here's Aristotle on the proper way to debate. Educated men lay down broad general principles. Uneducated men argue from common knowledge and draw obvious conclusions. Hmm, that's insightful. But Twain says something similar. It's just funnier. Never argue with stupid people. They will drag you down to their level and then beat you with experience. But behind the humor, Twain is showcasing a higher level of awareness, even a wiser perspective. And it's important to remember that not all philosophers were the embodiment of their own wisdom. They were human, after all. And that's the unfortunate distinction between Twain and the other classics. We know enough about his life, his idiosyncrasies, his shortcomings, even his hypocrisy. Plato and all of his crew, they get a pass because their personal weaknesses have been buried with time. Who knows, perhaps Cicero stuttered when he got nervous, and though Aristotle wrote near perfectly on how men must live, maybe he had a bad relationship with his son Nicomachus. The point is, just because we enjoy their wit and wisdom, we can probably learn a lot more from their lives. And that's precisely what we're going to do today. We'll take Twain's best lines and compare them to his real life. We'll dive into the brain's journey to wisdom and how easy it is to slip into pig-headedness, leaving us inflexible, ornery, or dangerously unaware. There is a razor-thin line between wisdom and downright stubbornness. We'll find one powerful micro-behavior that will help you shift your decision-making templates so you aren't bear-hugging your beliefs to death, especially the irrational ones. Each of us know who those people are. We never want to be like Aunt Jackie. Just think about how she acted at Thanksgiving. Too opinionated, too unwilling to listen. She's nothing like Grandma Dean. Or we walk away from meetings thinking how grateful we're not like that guy, the 73-year-old who's arguing social media strategies with a millennial. How can he be so blind, so stubborn? And that's when we usually commit to ourselves, I'll never be like that. But if you're not careful, you just may. And you'll do it unknowingly. It's clear that Twain was cautious about gambling in his early years, at least the kind that would ruin a man. And surely this had much to do with his own father. Stern and always serious. Twain's papa was also terrible at making money, which is why he had them move to Missouri in the first place. Too many debts. He purchased about 70,000 acres in Tennessee, hoping this real estate would appreciate and bring a huge windfall for the Clemens family. It didn't. But this risky maneuvering did have an impact on young Twain. 
Years later, he would reflect on his father's money hunting. It put our energies to sleep and made visionaries of us, dreamers and indolent. It is good to begin life poor. It is good to begin life rich. These are wholesome. But to begin it prospectively rich, the man who has not experienced it cannot imagine the curse of it. Although Twain tried to avoid repeating these mistakes, by the end of his life, he himself was a known gambler, and he fit in well with professional card sharks who roamed the riverboats. I have known clergymen, good men, kind-hearted, liberal, sincere, and all that, who did not know the meaning of a flush. It is enough to make one ashamed of one's species. How did Twain go from fretting about his friend's gambling to a well-known gambler himself? Why was he so entrenched in such costly behavior? Why couldn't he just break that mold? One historian tried to answer it this way, saying, one of the character flaws Sam Clemens seemed to have inherited from his father was a chronic inability to make good business decisions. He thought that big money could be made quickly. In some ways, his blindness about the repeated large failures suggests parallels to an obsession with gambling. The truth is that habits just aren't passed along in our genes. Sure, they influence our propensities and inclinations, but habits are subtle creatures, and they are led with a cognitive leash. Enter Dr. Elkanon Goldberg. He's exactly what you'd expect from somebody with an important title like clinical psychologist of New York University School of Medicine. When he speaks in his deep Latvian accent, you can't help but feel you're back in the Cold War and that this is one of those brilliant scientists who escaped. After you question Dr. Goldberg, something marvelous happens behind his eyes. It's almost as if he's giving his brain a break from the stimulus. He's just that smart. He's balding, too which is a good indicator for the man who wrote the book, The Wisdom Paradox. And that focuses on how the brain evolves over its lifespan and what that evolution does to our thinking models and repeated behaviors. It's important to know that Goldberg isn't just providing answers about America's favorite author. No, in fact, his research answers the question that psychologists have been trying to answer since William James legitimized the profession. Consider the endless research, the conference, the pop psychology, and the quotes, oh, the endless quotes, on how our thoughts dictate subsequent behavior. In one famous, albeit fabled story, the world's most prestigious psychologists of the 20th century gathered to a worldwide conference. They had come with an audacious purpose, to identify the century's best research into one single axiom. And after days of deliberation, they were confident in the results. And it all came down to this. What the mind attends to, the mind considers. What the mind constantly considers, the mind believes. And what the mind believes, the mind eventually does. When we hear this, we nod in avid agreement. It just smacks of obvious truth. After all, we've seen how our own thoughts have influenced our behaviors. Heck, we innately know our entire lives are dictated by these thoughts. It's just that most of us don't know how it really works. And that is what Goldberg answers beautifully. Take Twain's riverboat years, for example. 
a time, according to Goldberg, of great flux in the life of the mind, the time of learning, of accumulating the basic fund of mental skills and knowledge, and ultimately the time of forming our identities. So what Twain was doing while riding these riverboats was establishing his neural patterns, patterns which the brain stores as a template for behavior in the future. This pattern recognition is called an attractor, which simply means a constellation of neural networks that form quick answers for any similar experience in the future. Think of it this way. When we encounter, say, a blue pen, a red pen, a long, shiny pen, and a fountain pen, each of them create different sensory inputs. But despite all of them being different kinds of pens, they will trigger a similar neural network so we recognize them all as a pen. They're especially powerful because even the smallest stimulus will trigger a vast neural network in all parts of the brain. Now that flies in the face of older science that believed we had distinct modules, sections of the brain, reserved solely for specific cognitive functions. We've learned a lot since then. The brain is far more egalitarian. Take Twain, for example. The touch of a coin, the sound of a saloon piano, a business partner's letter, all of these inputs potentially triggered the same neural network template, the very one Twain used to make decisions about money. The term attractors was actually borrowed from the mathematics field, which actually helps explain how it works. It's defined as a situation when an equation produces a single constant solution for a whole range of different inputs. And that's precisely what the brain does too. You see, attractors are the cognitive investment we make now so we don't have to make it again in similar situations later. And that's a great thing if our templates create a positive result. And it's exactly what makes wise people so distinct, so revered in our culture. It's just like Goldberg says, wisdom is the precious gift of aging. By the very nature of the neural processes involved, wisdom pays dividends in old age by allowing relatively effortless decision-making and requiring only modest neural resources. The wise sages of our lives draw effortlessly from pre-built templates to answer our problems. They have tried and true attractors when we are still often struggling to build our own. Only a few weeks ago, I called my dear mother in London. Now, she is the epitome of maternal sagacity. At the age of 65, she decided to leave 18 grandkids and carry out her dream, studying the women in the Bible at King's College. Now, my mother has had a rich, full life, especially after raising six. That's right, six kids, five boys, and a single girl. That meant a lot of bloody noses and Disney parties. We burned Barbies and ruined couches with wrestling sessions. There were endless school projects, emotional breakdowns, painful breakups, puberty, sports, college acceptance and rejections, and marriages. It was a full life of experiences. And all of them contributed to the template she built on how to address stress with your kids. As Goldberg put it, wisdom is a reward, not an entitlement. It has to be earned. And likewise, you have to work for your competence. So when I called, she could tell I was down. You see, I've got four energetic kids under the age of seven. And our house is constantly shifting from sweet innocence to spicy tantrums. And lately, they were just winning the battle. 
Normally, we have an actor portray a scene or find the right sound effects, but this one was of my actual home. It seems nobody could capture the chaos adequately. And I felt conflicted as a dad, both too lenient and stern at the same time. Were they addicted to smartphones already? And I swear, I do not remember the last time they took a bath. I felt I just needed my mother's wisdom. And she did it in two seconds. Andrew, she said, you are being too hard on yourself. Seven words, born from deep experience and a well-deserved attractor. I borrowed her wisdom as my own in the moment I needed it most. And it gave me perspective and patience. Bless those wise parents, teachers, and friends who share their templates. It is one of the highest forms of service. But wisdom isn't reserved for the few, elect, blessed with just rare experiences. No, what makes wisdom so special is that it is an indicator, a badge of honor, for those willing to honor their experiences with reflection and self-inquiry. For example, a news report highlights a recent political scandal. Now, this may upset a standard citizen, leaving them stewing on their sofa. But the next-door neighbor sees the very same report, and she digests the exact same information. She watches the same anchor and hears the same words. But this experience invigorates her to create a petition, gather signatures around the neighborhood. The environmental inputs move her to action. You see, it's not the information that we ingest from the experience, but how we reflect on, internalize it, that makes the difference. The way we interpret our experience is ultimately what designs our identities, because we're reinforcing a certain neural network that will become easier and easier to access. But the reverse is also true. You see, deciding not to do anything about the political scandal has just a powerful impact though on an entirely different set of neurons, one built around indifference and inaction. And just as those neural grooves gain density and strength, they become increasingly more difficult to adapt. It's as if the warm, moldable plastic of our neurons are starting to cool in a rigid mold. And this is the great paradox of wisdom. Yes, your thinking patterns become easier to retrieve later on in life. You have an aura of wisdom, of answers. But they also become increasingly more difficult to change. What is dangerous is that it's not like we're deliberately holding on to them with stubborn energy. It's that we're so often unaware that these models are what dictate our behavior. So what does that mean for somebody like Twain? who often finds himself using the same decision-making templates over and over, but ending up with disastrous results. That is where this story gets scary. When a brain reaches its final stages, it begins to shrink. Literally, each decade, Twain's brain, much like our own, will shrink by 2% in size and weight. And if smaller volume isn't alarming, consider this. Neuroscientists have learned when certain neurons become inactive for too long, the brain begins to naturally prune them out, as if trimming dead twigs and leaves from a tree. 
It's a use it or lose it game. So when Twain observed moneymakers or gamblers, he's making thousands of micro interpretations. We know that early on his templates steered negative, like his response to his friend Mr. Bacchus. But eventually these interpretations become increasingly positive as he finds justification to interpret money with an aggressive mindset. A winning hand at poker just wasn't dumb luck anymore. It was, well, how did he put it? A necessary skill set of our species. And a quick business scheme turns from a risky investment to a thrilling adventure. As Twain codifies his experiences, they create deep neural impressions in certain areas, while the neural framework for prudence and caution is dying at the vine. In the aggregate, these interpretations set the template for how he sees money, what it's good for, and the easiest way to get more of it. When Twain grew older, he decided to invest in another high-risk, get-rich invention called the Page Compositor. It was an earlier version of a printer. To make things worse, the inventor was slick and smarmy. Almost on a weekly basis, Twain would get a letter from his partner asking for more money and also with a healthy dose of self-promotion. This may fairly claim never to have been equaled by any composing machine. It is to be the foremost example of mechanism ever produced in the United States, if not in the whole world. That's lofty talk. And yet, Twain ate it up. But when he would ask for proof of progress on the project, he always got an excuse. And yet, Twain kept sending money because of the templates he was using to make decisions. The templates he developed over decades of experiences, long after he tried to stop his friend from gambling. The templates put reward well above risk. Even when all signs pointed to failure, he was unwilling to budge. A few investors actually approached him, willing to diffuse the risk, but that would mean less payout for him. Even though his personal finances were catastrophic, even though his wife pled for him to change, Twain was undeterred. The potential for a windfall was just too intoxicating. So, after borrowing yet another 160 grand to keep the machine alive, Twain would write to his family, The machine still has a grip on our purse. But it wasn't the machine. It was Twain's attractors. Imagine asking your assistant to identify the land value of a new deal you're working on. Instead of getting the relevant information from Google or comparable properties, he goes to the filing cabinet and pulls up an old project that looks and feels similar to the one you're working on now. It's a good enough template to give you a good enough answer. Even though the properties are in different parts of the country and the economy isn't nearly as strong, but surely this will provide an adequate framework. You take this at face value, so when you present your analysis to the board, they're hostile. Why? Because they know there's so much more to this deal. There are nuances you didn't or perhaps would not consider. The board sees you as stubborn, as one who doesn't want to learn. A recent study done by LinkedIn illustrates this a little further. They went to 18 different countries and asked employees of different ages whether they would spend more time learning if it were recognized by a manager. 44% of the Gen Zers those under 22 at this time, said yes. But what about the boomers? Half of that. 
Okay, so why didn't Twain just stop associating with the charlatans, the gamblers, the sycophants? Why do we, like him, keep finding ourselves in places that evoke the wrong response? It's because they are easy. Because our habits, even the mental ones, are tied heavily to the context. And these environments require far less energy. Say what you will about our brains, but they are supreme at conserving energy. And our response is always guiding us to the familiar, less novel, even potentially dangerous situations. The calm waters, even if those waters are hurting us in the long run. Think of it this way. It's the first day of class, and you enter not knowing a single person. There's chatter amidst the rest of the students, and everybody's just trying to fit in. They're nervous. But you don't think about that because you're new, and you don't know a single one. You're just trying to find a seat without garnering too much attention. The third row from the right looks perfect, so you relax a little as you settle in. Now, be honest. What do you do the next day when you come back to class? Where do you sit? Exactly. It's just so much easier to go back to where you were, to what you're familiar with. Never mind that you won't meet new people, or you can't read the writing on the board. You've earned that level of comfort, says your brain. Why disrupt it? Perhaps that's why, as Twain grew older, his light-hearted wit seems imbued with a serious tone on topics like philosophy, politics, religion, law. In his early life, his humor was based on a trenchant view of the world, building a reservoir of new awareness. But once you've seen the pattern over and over, it no longer becomes funny. Novelty is a foundation for humor. And as Goldberg explains, intuition is the condensation of vast prior analytic experience. It is analysis compressed and crystallized. But here's the good news. We don't have to get to that place if we start now. Dr. Goldberg has been on a campaign to help people avoid these pitfalls of wisdom by engaging in mental activity and cognitive challenges that upend our habitual mental models. Things like reflective learning, intellectual honesty, and curiosity are especially important. But because these thinking patterns are so automatic, they're incredibly difficult to catch. The best help comes from loved ones. So ask yourself, and perhaps somebody you trust, these questions. Take time. Pause the podcast if you need to. This is where your learning becomes personal. This is where change begins. In which situation do you often feel most confident you are right? What are possible alternatives you haven't considered in a while? Be specific. Who can you ask to help you identify consistent filters? Those that will be honest with you because they do truly love you. Now, what would they most likely say about you? And finally, what qualifiers do you say or think in work and relationships? Things like, he never helps clean up, or she is always late to meetings. This last question is important, because now that we've seen how wisdom is both a curse and a blessing, 
Surely we hope to be better. Surely we want to be courageous enough to consider something or someone may be wiser than ourselves. And when we enter conversations or relationships with these stringent qualifiers, words like never, always, every, or all, then we shut the window. Call it the grip of absolutes. We've built out attractors and we're unwilling to look back at the work, the assumptions, the experiences that built them. And so one great way to bust up this cognitive stubbornness is from a micro-behavior using a single word. And here it is. Are you ready? However. That's it. However is a reframer. It's a brake pedal for your normal course of thinking, especially when we are entrenched. When we use qualifiers like always, never, most, it limits our potential options for answers. The word however sets them free. It's powerful because it will shift your attention to an entirely different neural vein, perhaps one that's been nearly dying on the vine. The word however is the welcome water it just needed. The kids are always yelling at each other. However, they are much kinder when they play outside. Now, do your kids yell at each other? Sure. But look where your focus has gone. Nobody appreciates all the effort I put into the annual neighborhood party. However, the Smiths just lost their grandma. They must be preoccupied. Do you usually work harder than everybody? Probably. But one single word has started down a different course of thinking instead of dwelling on original assumptions that perhaps dictated your behaviors for months, maybe even years. Congratulations, you've just rocked your attractors. These little tweaks may seem small, but in the aggregate, they'll start to bust up templates that your brain has been relying on for quite some time. So, let's review the micro-behavior. When you catch yourself using a qualifier like always, never, most, everybody, then follow it up with however, and let your mind wander to a whole new, undeveloped template. If Mark Twain were trying this, he might say, I'm always looking for a great investment. However, I can't spend more than last month's income. What's important here is what is important with all microbehaviors. We're not asking to change our nature. We're simply tweaking our pattern of thought. We're starting a simple change because that is what is sustainable. We plant the seeds of long-term change in the simple, incremental steps, not the giant leaps that rarely produce fruit. When Twain's mother, Jane, was deep into her 80s, he was curious about what he was like as a child. I suppose that during the whole time you were uneasy about me, he asked. Yes, the whole time, she answered. Afraid I wouldn't live? No, she said. Afraid you would. Of course he did live, and what an incredible life it was, filled with narratives that helped form a young nation's literary identity. But in 1891, after he'd squandered all the wealth he'd earned from Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, he closed down his expensive home in Hartford. He sold his furniture and assets he'd built over 17 years. He was off to Europe, seeking to become a new, a better man. Oh, and to escape $150,000 of debt. It's no coincidence, then, 
that in Florence, the center of the Renaissance, that Twain wrote his money demons into one of his characters. At this point, Twain suffered from rheumatism, leaving his right hand, his moneymaker, in excruciating pain. So he had to write with his left because the agony was too great to write with the hand that made him famous, the hand that made him who he was. The main character of Puddinhead Wilson is Tom, and he was originally destined to a life of wealth before he was switched at birth. In his new surroundings, he developed the kind of thinking that echoed Twain's, gambling, debt, and a lust for fortune. But it all came back to haunt him in the end. To begin, I'll square up with the proceeds. And then gambling has got to be stopped, and stopped short of. It's the worst vice I've got. I make an oath to that. I'm entering on my last reform. I know it. Yes, and I'll win. But after that, if I slip again, I'm gone. That is the good news about wisdom. It isn't fixed. Reform is possible. And if that's true, then we can never stop learning. And isn't that the most essential characteristic of wisdom after all? Hey listeners, be sure to visit MyMicroBehaviors.com where you can get exclusive content for this episode. You can get notes for the research, primary source documents, and even more microbehaviors. A special thanks to David Evanoff Studios and Jacob Watson for sound engineering. And also a big thank you to all of my different editors.